Welcome to Introduction to Feminist and Social Justice Studies. This is the 18th audio episode of the semester-long course for the Gender, Sexuality, Feminist, and Social Justice Studies program at McGill University, taking place in the fall of 2021. My name is Dr. Alex Ketchum. I'm your professor for this course. I'm joined by three teaching assistants who are graduate students at McGill University. Our teaching team will lead you through the materials of this course. Today's episode centers on the topic of health. We'll look at the many forms health can take, the history of recent health movements, and more. Let's get started. Pink like the lips around your Maybe pink like the skin that's under Baby pink, her is deepest inside Crazy pink, the young forest in life Pink like the secrets you hide Maybe pink like the lid of your eye Baby pink is where all of it starts Crazy pink like the holes of your heart So here we are in the car Leaving traces of us down the boulevard I wanna fall through the stars Getting lost in the dark is my favorite part Let's count the ways we could make this last the song for today's class is Janelle Monae's song Pink, featuring Grimes. Monet is an American singer, songwriter, producer, and actor, appearing in films such as Hidden Figures and Moonlight. She identifies as bisexual and pansexual and also plays with gender in many of her music videos. The song features Canadian musician Grimes. Monet describes the song as, starting quote, a celebration of creation, self-love, sexuality, and pussy power, and that the color pink unites all of humanity because it is the color found in the deepest and darkest nooks and crannies of humans everywhere, end quote. I picked pink for today's song because the song overtly celebrates vulvas, vaginas, and sexual empowerment. When we look at the history of health and look at one of the readings for today, Karen Sandler's 1974 piece, My First Orgasm, we can see how radical it once was and even can continue to be to not only acknowledge but also to celebrate vulvas and vaginas. But let's rewind a bit. What is health? There are lots of ways to think about health. Sure, we can think about as health as in health care in a medical facility. We can also think about health as in knowledge of the body and access to it. We can think about it as reproductive justice, the topic for the next lecture. We can think about it as health as related to sexuality, disability, and embodiment. We can also think of it in a larger sense, as in the health of society, the health of the environment, and the health of our communities. We need to think about who has access to healthcare and knowledge about their bodies. This is a major theme of today's lecture. I want us to also think about whether we think about health as an individual phenomenon or a social one. Throughout this course, we have talked about examples of community groups working to support their communities, to help their communities thrive. We can see examples of this here in Montreal. We can look to examples such as the African-Canadian Feminist Organization, which existed from 1902 to 1940, named the Colored Women's Club of Montreal, CWCM, which contributed to the social well-being of Montreal's Black community. The CWCM played a major role as one of the leading supports for members who encounter harsh challenges 
In a society where racism prevailed and opportunities for men and women were severely restricted, with club members functioning as early social welfare practitioners. In the transcript, I've linked to an open access 2017 article by David Esty, Krista Sato, and Darcy McKenna on the history of the club. We can see other examples, such as in 1969, when civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hamer founded the Freedom Farm Cooperative in order to fight poverty, hunger, and racism. The Freedom Farm Cooperative included a pig bank, Head Start program, community gardens, commercial kitchen, a garment factory, sewing cooperative, tool bank, and low-income affordable housing as strategies to support the needs of African Americans who were fired and evicted for exercising the right to vote. Freedom Farms offered these sharecroppers and tenant farmers educational and retraining opportunities, including health care and disaster relief for those who want to stay in the Mississippi Delta. Monica White wrote an amazing article about this topic, to which I have linked to in the transcript. We have previously talked about the Eastern Woodlands rematriation, which is a collective of indigenous people restoring the spiritual foundation of their livelihoods through regenerative food systems. We can also look to the work of seed keeper Rowan White. We've previously talked about the Black Panther free breakfast program hosted by the Black Panther Party, who used this to feed children before school. We can look to the work of prison abolitionists from the past and today and the recent defund the police movements, which draw attention to the way that so much money is spent on prisons versus the creation of schools. We can look to municipal budgets in which the majority of their budgets are allocated to policing while there are continual cuts to health care and elder care. As Angela Davis states, prisons do not disappear social problems, they disappear human beings. Homelessness, unemployment, drug addiction, mental illness, and illiteracy are only a few of the problems that disappear from public view when human beings contending with them are relegated to cages. We see this in the Defund the Military movements, in which attention is drawn to huge military budgets, whereas projects that improve air and water quality and access to healthcare and education are seen as too expensive. Activists in these movements ask what communities want to invest in, what kinds of investments lead to safer, healthier communities. It's also something to give a lecture on health during a pandemic when we're experiencing this cost remotely. I'm not going to focus on COVID-19 today, except to see, except to say that we can see the themes throughout this lecture apply to the current pandemic. Now in 2020, at the confluence of the pandemic, the Black Lives Matter movement, and calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, the questions of what creates a healthier community or communities are at the forefront. There are so many starting points to look at the history of the intersections of women's activism and health movements. We can look to the long histories of midwifery. We could look to the work done by feminists around infant mortality at the end of the 19th and early 20th centuries and the activism around securing clean milk for infants. We can look to women's work around developing infrastructure for sewage and clean water during that period as well. We can look to the histories of where women decided and are pushed to give birth, whether in hospitals or outside of them. I'm going to focus on the period the majority of our class has looked at, around the last 50 to 60 years. We will start by looking at feminist health movements from the late 1960s onward. We will see how the conversation has broadened from looking at women's health to thinking about queer and trans health 
Although this lecture will speak to this a bit, in the next lecture we will discuss in more detail reproductive justice, reproductive injustices, and maternity. I open today's lecture by playing Pink and mentioning the 1974 piece by Karen Sandler about her first orgasms. Feminist health movements of the late 1960s onward began as a part of feminist activism. I'm going to start by talking about the Boston Women's Health Collective and then speak to organizing in Montreal. So let me set the stage. It's the late 1960s. Birth control exists, but it's difficult to access. It wasn't until 1965 that the Supreme Court in the United States ruled in Griswold v. Connecticut that it was unconstitutional for the government to prohibit married couples from using birth control. So after 1965, married couples in the United States could access birth control. But for non-married people, accessing contraceptives continued to be difficult. Later, in 1972, the court extended the right to privacy to individuals, regardless of whether they were married, and thus being able to access birth control. In Canada, it was illegal to even talk about birth control in the start of 1969. In 1968, under Canada's criminal code, the dissemination, sale, and advertisement of birth control methods were all illegal, and abortion was punishable by life imprisonment. In the United States, the Comstock Act, passed in 1843 as an act of the suppression of trade in and circulation of obscene literature and articles of immoral use, criminalized the publication, possession, and distribution of contraceptives, abortifacients, and anything related. Not until 1971 did Congress remove Comstock's language around contraception. To get a pregnancy test, you couldn't just drop into a pharmacy. You had to go to a doctor unless you could find a women's group providing the service. In 1969, in Canada, abortion became legal when performed under certain circumstances. In 1969, the Criminal Law Amendment legalized abortion as long as a committee of doctors certified that continuing the pregnancy would likely endanger the woman's life or health. The Supreme Court of Canada found the regulation of abortion in the Criminal Code to be unconstitutional and overturned the abortion law in 1988. There have been no federal restrictions on abortion since that time. In the United States, it, abortion was being legal across the country via the landmark 1973 case of Roe v. Wade. Okay, so it's the end of the 1960s. It's hard and or illegal to get birth control, especially if you are unmarried. It's illegal to talk about it or distribute information about it in the U.S. and Canada. Most doctors are men. Most women don't have information about their own health including but not limited to reproductive health. In May of 1969, 12 women ranging in age from 23 to 39 met during a women's liberation conference at Emanuel College in the Boston area. In a workshop on women and their bodies, they shared information and personal stories and discussed their experiences with doctors. The discussions were so provocative and fulfilling that they formed the Doctors Group, the forerunner to the Boston Women's Health Book Collective which later changed its name to Our Bodies Ourselves. And they decided to research and discuss what they were learning about themselves, their bodies, and their health. According to the organization's official history, they decided to put their knowledge into an accessible format that could be shared and would serve as a model for women who want to learn about themselves, communicate their feelings with their findings with doctors, and challenge the medical establishment to change and improve the care that women receive.
1970, they published a 193-page course booklet on stapled newsprint entitled Women and Their Bodies. You can actually read the full text, which is available as a PDF file that I have linked to in the transcript. It was revolutionary for its frank talk about sexuality and abortion, which was then illegal. The cost at the time was 75 cents. This book is so important. In it, you can read how the authors linked the lack of information women had about their bodies to power structures of capitalism and patriarchy. Here you can see important roots in sexual empowerment, embodiment, and agency. I really recommend scrolling through the PDF I have provided of the first book. In 1971, they changed the title to Our Bodies Ourselves to emphasize women taking full ownership of their bodies. The book put women's health in a radically new political and social context and quickly began became an underground success, selling 250,000 copies, mainly by word of mouth. The cost for this edition at this time was around 40 cents. They wanted to make this information as readily accessible and available to all women. In 1972, the group formally incorporated as the Boston Women's Health Collective. Since 1974, publishers and women's groups in other countries started translating and adapting Our Bodies Ourselves and developing books inspired by it. In 2001, Our Bodies Ourselves formalized the Our Bodies Ourselves Global Initiative, which provides support to and works closely with women's groups adapting the book for their own cultures and communities. As of spring of 2020, Our Bodies Ourselves have been, has been reproduced in 33 languages, reaching millions of women around the world, including in Spanish, Vietnamese, and Farsi. In 2018, however, the, co the collective stopped publishing the text. Most years when I teach this course, I typically bring some copies of the book's various editions from my personal collection. The book had numerous major and minor edition changes, being rarely updated with new medical research. The book was and has been very significant. In later editions, there is information about nutrition, exercise, and a wide range of health information. The earliest edition is focused more on sexuality and reproduction. There's information about masturbation. Again, this is seen as quite radical at the time. But it wasn't actually the first text of its kind. We can look to Montreal and McGill for that. The Birth Control Handbook, which was one of the readings for today's class, was one of the ways that Canadians took control over their own bodies. It was published by the McGill Student Society in 1968. The handbook sold millions of copies in Canada and internationally. I've also linked to a PDF version of the handbook in the transcript. Remember, McGill's students published this book when it was illegal to even talk about birth control and abortion. It was full of information about birth control that was illegal and therefore unknown to most Canadian women. Working alongside Montreal-based doctors, Thomas Primrose and Robert Kinch, Donna Cherniak, Feingold, and their team of fellow students compiled the handbook to address the lack of information about birth control available to students, students of all genders. McGill alum Donna Cherniak, one of the handbook's original two authors, actually spoke on campus a couple of years ago about her work on the handbook. She talked about making copies not to not just distribute to McGill students, but then to other Montreal universities, SAGEPs, and then they started getting and fulfilling orders from universities across Canada and the United States, including Princeton University and the University of Maine. Cherniak said, The point of the birth control handbook was to give people information not only about the plumbing of how you get pregnant and how not to get pregnant, 
but also the social and political issues that influence how all that works. In an interview with Atlas Obscura, Cherniak stated, To me, our innovation was to talk about birth control as something that was about people and not about technique. In her talk at McGill, Cherniak, who later became a physician, made the important point that the book was also about the politics of pleasure and that pleasure was key. So between the birth control handbook, which also got published in French, and the women in our bodies and the our bodies ourselves text, we can see a key part about this movement was about helping women learn about their bodies and that gaining information was a form of empowerment. Pleasure as a form of empowerment was also key. You can see this in the use of images in the text. You can see this in the sections about masturbation and same-sex relationships in our bodies ourselves text from their first publications. This brings us to the other primary source reading for today, Karen Sangler's short 1974 text, which personalizes the experiences and brings to the fore the radicalism of women claiming their orgasms and centering pleasure. This was a period when, as a form of self-empowerment, some women would come together and look at their vulvas with a mirror for the first time. In the text, Sangler talks about the day when she had her first orgasm. She talks about how she had been raised to think of masturbation as bad and how she had been told to wait until she married Prince Charming. She met with other women and learned about her body's anatomy and different techniques for experiencing pleasure. On the one hand, this might seem like a small story, but I've included it because there's something very powerful in this one personal story. In this story, we can see the deleterious effects of restricting groups of people from knowledge about their own bodies. We can see the politics of pleasure, We can see the ability to connect with her body, to not feel shame, and to experience pleasure was revolutionary for her. Remember, it wasn't until 1981 that the Federation of Feminist Women's Health Clinics created anatomically correct images of the clitoris. Published in A New View of a Woman's Body, the images were part of a wider attempt to provide thorough, accurate information to women to support their health. So these images didn't exist before 1981. As a 2017 piece in The Atlantic by Naomi Russo recounted, there is so much ignorance about the clitoris still. As the University of Western Sydney clinician and physiotherapy researcher Jane Chalmers explains, the subject of the clitoris is still avoided or ignored. Several major medical textbooks omit the clitoris or label it on diagrams, but have no description of it as an organ, she says. This is in great contrast to the penis that is always covered in depth in these texts. This lack of information and research on women's bodies continues today. We can see that in Carolyn Criado Perez's book, Invisible Women, which was the book we opened this class with. There is a data gap of what information is collected on and how medicines affect women's bodies. It is it seems like anytime you Google symptoms, the solution, based on a dearth of research, is hormonal birth control. There's a long history of doctors not believing women's pain. This is gendered and racialized, a topic we will speak about more in the next lecture. Women describing discomfort are more likely than men to be dismissed by physicians. We can see this with the history of endometriosis, a chronic and debilitating illness triggered by uterine-like cells growing outside of the womb. People with the disorder have heavy, agonizing periods, along with a litany of other symptoms depending on where the rogue cells lurk. If they congregate near the bladder, urinating hurts. Near the sciatic nerve, pain shoots down the legs. Inside the lung, a rare event, breathing can be stifled. 
Women, trans, and non-binary folks with endometriosis often suffer for years before receiving treatment. We can see this with the ways that menstruation is discussed or not discussed and treated as shameful. The fight to have access about women's health continues today and has expanded to thinking about non-binary and trans folks as well. We can see this with Gynapunk. The Catalan collective Gynapunk wants to empower do-it-yourself DIY and do-it-together DIT tools to make reproductive healthcare accessible. This group of biohackers and trans-hack feminists are out to reclaim gynecological medicine and have the goal, and they have the goal to develop a toolkit for emergency gynecological medicine, something like a risk reduction kit for drug users. This kit can be helpful for immigrants without health coverage, for refugee camps, but also for sex workers, organized or not. They have created a 3D printable speculum, which I have linked to in the transcripts. For a workshop at Hangar in Barcelona, they developed a biolab emergency box. The aim was to assemble DIY biohacking tools to analyze body fluids, blood, urine, vaginal fluids, aided by Hacteria Network Gynapunk, developed three tools, a centrifuge, a microscope, and an incubator. The centrifuge separates solids from liquids and decants their contacts, contents for examination under the microscope. The microscope, a useful tool for cytology, the study of cell morphology, and histolo- histology, tissue morphology, is used to identify by color urinary and other genital fungal infections. Finally, the incubator grows the bacteria in a petri dish, dish, feeding them to reveal their presence. So I've linked in the transcript to more information about this project. In an interview with Vice, one member, Paula Penn, reflected that this hacker mentality for me serves as a new way to understand the world around us and gives us many tools to develop and generate our own technologies. Paula Penn, an early gynecopunk, wrote, We understand our body, also the technology, to be hacked from the established ideas of gender and sex to exploring the capacity to start researching ourselves to find our own ideas and technologies to help us be free, autonomous, and independent from the system. Another member, Clow, reflected, It represents, at least for me, some kind of purgatory, sometimes hell. I came from a country where abortion is still illegal. I had myself a risky illegal abortion in Peru, 14 years ago, as a migrant, I've been mistreated and insulted in Spanish gyneco- gynecology rooms. So I'm involved in this work because it's something that my body needs. It's something vital. As a political struggle about taking back technologies, taking my body back and away from all this violence. But it isn't just reproductive health care. There's a lack of research on gender differences for dosage of medicine. We can see this with heart attacks too. Most people learn the symptoms of heart attacks from men. However, women don't always get the same classic heart attack symptoms as men, such as crushing chest pain that radiates down one arm. Those heart attack symptoms can certainly happen to women, but many experience vague or even silent symptoms that they may miss, such as a chest pain or discomfort, pain in arms, jaw, back, or neck, stomach pain, shortness of breath, nausea, lightheadedness, sweating, and fatigue and there is even less research for non-binary folks. This brings us to the last reading for today. Sina Sharman's introduction to The Remedy, Queer and Trans Voices on Health from 2018. To remedy means to heal, to cure, to set right, to make reparations. The Remedy invites readers and writers to imagine 
what we need to create healthy, resilient, and thriving LGBTQ communities. This anthology is a diverse collection of real-life stories from queer and trans people on their own healthcare experiences and challenges, from gay men living with HIV who remember the systematic resistance to their healthcare needs, to a lesbian couple dealing with the experience of cancer, to young trans people who struggle to find healthcare providers who treat them with dignity and respect. This book also includes essays by healthcare providers, activists, and leaders with something to say about the challenges, politics, and opportunities surrounding LGBTQ health issues. This book is about the power of narrative and voices from the communities. Sharman doesn't want the quantitative to outweigh the qualitative, but she also includes it in the appendix. A large barrier is the lack of training doctors receive about LGBTQ plus issues in medical school, sometimes a few as just a couple of hours of their total training. We have touched previously on the histories of how gay, queer, trans, and non-binary people have and are treated by the medical system, how doctors have pathologized queer, trans, and non-binary people, and the role of the DSM in codifying this. The Remedy seeks to bring forward these stories in order to build better medical communities. Zena Sharman often addresses medical students, and that was part of why she wrote the book. She also published a version of a talk she gave to the incoming class of medical students at the Stanford University School of Medicine during their orientation in August of 2019. I've linked to it in the transcript. She writes, For many people, and certainly for many LGBTQ plus folks and other sexual and gender minorities, going to the doctor isn't simply a neutral experience of accessing healthcare. It's a visceral, embodied experience that carries with it physical and emotional legacies of past and present traumas, including at the hands of the medical system and the felt impacts of the intersecting oppressions that may be limiting their ability to thrive or even survive. Research from the US, Canada, and Europe shows a consistent pattern of LGBTQ plus people avoiding or postponing needing medical care and preventative screenings because they've experienced disrespect or discrimination from healthcare providers. Transgender people report this at much higher rates than sexual minorities. I know far too many LGBTQ plus people who avoid or delay accessing healthcare because they're afraid of discrimination. I feel fiercely hopeful that this can change and I want to be part of making it happen. Further down, she writes, Medicine is part of society, which means it's shaped by the same oppressive dynamics that shape the world around it. Power and privilege are in our medical school classrooms, hospitals, and clinics. Racism is there. Colonialism is there. Gender inequity, sexism, and sexual violence are there. Ableism is there. Fat phobia is there. Classism is there. Ageism is there. Homophobia, biphobia, and transphobia are there. End quote. She encourages medical students to think about what kinds of doctors they want to be, and building off of the legacies of texts such as the Birth Control Handbook and Our Bodies Ourselves, she writes, I see radical potential in approaching LGBTQ plus health and healthcare from a place that centers pride and pleasure. I don't mean ignoring risks or even evidence of disparities. I mean shifting that lens through which you understand and interact with your patients. Think back to my advice about learning what good health looks like and feels like for your LGBTQ plus patients. This is another layer to that advice, anchored in the idea that access to affirming, strength-based, pleasure-centered, sex-positive healthcare grounded in principles of harm reduction could transform LGBTQ plus people's experiences of going to the doctor, end quote.
research, respect, and pleasure are key going forward in new health movements. In the next lecture, we will pay particular attention to the role of race, gender, and class within this discussion. To end today's lecture, I want to link to Researching for LGBTQ Two-Spirit Plus Health, which is a lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, transsexual, two-spirit, and queer and ally researchers who focus on understanding how LGBTQ Two-Spirit Plus people experience physical and emotional mental health and how they access health services. There are so many ways you can discuss connections between social justice, feminism, and health. We will build on these themes for the remaining lectures this semester as we look at reproductive justice, embodiment, ableism, violence, and the environment. All the songs, videos, images, and graphics used in podcast and transcript belong to their respective owners, and I do not claim any right over them. The opening bell sound is School Bell Dot Wave from 13F Panska Stratska Michaela, and the closing bell is Inspector J's Bell Counter, A Dot Wave of Freesound.org. Fair Dealing is an accepted in Canadian Copyright Act that outlines the permitted and unauthorized use of copyrighted materials for specific mandated purposes in Canada. These purposes include research, private study, education, parody, satire, criticism, review, or news reporting. For research and private study, education, parody, satire, there is no special requirements required. For criticism, review, and news reporting, the source and author must be named to constitute fair dealing. This is an advertisement-free podcast used for educational purposes.